I'm Peter Martin. And I'm Adam Manis. Welcome to the You'll Hear It podcast. Today we're going to talk about seven jazz albums that changed our lives. I'm going to kick it off if that's cool with one. Yeah, only seven? I know, only seven. Ooh. Well, you know, we're on this seven thing and we're, we're trying to fit into it, so right, let's see right. where it goes. All right. <laughs> okay, number one for me uh, is John Coltrane, Crescent. It's a great album. It's a great album and it's, you know, it's interesting because it's kind of ebbs and flows in terms of awareness. When I was 14, 15, 16 years old, there was a lot of talk about that record. It was like super available. Everybody knew what it was. Now with the youngins, when I kind of mention it, sometimes they're like, oh, let me write that down. Is that on YouTube? Is, is that on Spotify? Which I'm always surprised. But I, you know, it was, a, it was a very influential record and definitely changed my life, mainly because of McCoy Tyner. Mm. I mean, you know, Elvin Jones, Jimmy Garrison, John Coltrane, incredible. And the ensemble playing, the compositions on there, I, I think it's an amazing album from beginning to end because the pieces fit together so well. It's like a complete work. Absolutely. Um, but to me, it was like what really changed my life was McCoy Tyner. You know, I learned his solo on, on a couple of the tunes, and in particular on Lonnie's Lament. That solo oh, is something that probably a day since then, so if I was like 14 years old when I learned that, like, what is that, five years ago now, something like that? <laughs> a day hasn't gone by that I haven't thought about that solo in some way, either, either in a dream or, or during the day. Incredible. I feel like that was a, definitely a high point in that band's development, that record. I mean, that was just, they were all so popping right now. Right. All right, what's number two for you? I mean, for me, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna also going to go with Coltrane, but for me, uh, an eye-opening record as far as what jazz could be was Giant Steps. Everybody knows the famous Giant Steps and his um, you know, amazing harmonic concept that he kind of threw with the band on the session, mm. those poor guys, but that he had been shedding for, for a while, and he just is crushing it. And this, I always describe it as this like angular sound. To me, that whole rec record sounds like it has these really great angles on it. It still feels like a blues record in some regards. You know what I mean? There's still that like feeling of the blues. It still grooves like crazy, but it has this this undeniable modernity to it. And it was so far ahead of this day. It still sounds relevant now. Mm. I mean, I just love every track on it, every ballad, every blues. Of course, all the, the stuff that moves around in the tonal centers is great. Um, so you're saying not only did it change your life, but you like it. You love it, perhaps. I, I do kind of like it. <laughs> I like it a lot, yeah. Nice. Okay, so next I'm going to go with Wynton Marsalis' Black Codes from the Underground. Nice. Um, and in fact, in some ways, this, because of the timing of when I heard that record and that I went and picked it up at Streetside Records in St. Louis, Missouri, on the day that it was released, oh, yeah. you know, in 1985. Like, that record was very, very influential to me. Um, again, because of the pianist, but, but really all the solos. I mean, Jeff Watts, his concept of, of interaction on there has, like, kind of shaped my whole concept for, for playing within a rhythm section since then. Um, I was, like, 14, 15 years old when that record came out, I guess 15. And I had just heard that band live with Kenny Kirkland, Branford Marsalis, Wynton Marsalis, Jeff Watts, Charnett Moffat on bass. And I got, got a chance to meet Kenny Kirkland, and he gave me some, some tips and some words of encouragement. Um, so that record just totally blew me away and changed everything. I, just, I wanted to be Kenny Kirkland. I wanted to comp like him. I wanted to, um, you know, really just approach music the way he did. So I really got into sort of the concept of how he was playing on that record in terms of 
comping, um, soloing, his ballad playing. and Plus, I just, I love that record. I love the way it sounds. I mean, some people hear it now and think it sounds very 80s in terms of like how it's EQ'd and stuff, and it is, but that was kind of my first real interaction with a modern jazz record in real time with a band that I heard live with a new record as it came out. That's a really cool experience. Um, and you know what, I'm gonna switch it up then too, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for a more modern record. Um, that I had the same experience with, and that's Josh Redman's Beyond record. You remember that one? Ninety-nine or two thousand, right around yeah. there. Uh, I saw them live here in St. Louis, and I was a teenager. And was, uh, Aaron Goldberg on piano, who I later studied with, great, great pianist, great guy. Your friend Ruben Rogers, Greg Hutchinson in that band. Unbelievable compositions, a, a great original sound. And I think it's, it's Joshua Redman's best uh, recording for me as far as, as just how understated he is mm. in his playing and how, how genuinely sophisticated the sound of that album is. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely. Um, well, let's see. Let's, uh, where are we at now? That's like four, right? So That's we're getting four. close to seven. Now I'm getting nervous because we've got a lot of choices. Um, I think next I'm going to go, you know, because we're talking about, remember, this is, this is tough because we're going to start talking about our favorites or the greatest, but we really said seven jazz albums that changed our lives. So that actually gives, gives, gives it a nice little focus. I'm going to go with Thelonious Monk, Solo Monk on Columbia. Mm. And that record, um, again, because of sort of the timing of when I heard it, um, you know, really changed everything for me. And I learned several of those tunes off, off of that recording, um, transcribed them, you know, both hands, solo piano. So like that kind of set up my solo piano concept as it were but it's also a record that i think you know like the sound of it the concept of how monk played his tunes and the standards that are on there is so uh just deeply interesting and conceptual that it just changed the way i looked at at, at his music and, and all music and again i kind of think about it and hear it and every time i put that record on it, it just puts a smile back on my face i mean it's such a deep record for pianists that I, the whole thing his his solo piano approach is so joyful. I mean, yeah. It's just amazing. I'm glad you chose that one. All right, I'm going to choose one that uh, changed my life because when, the first time I heard this, it, it, was a, it was a light bulb going off about the possibilities of what jazz could be, and that's Herbie Hancock's Thrust. Nice. I mean, this is the one with actual proof on mm. it, and Spanka Lee, and uh, but, I think Butterflies from that, mm. is that right? Yeah, I mean, just amazing. There's no doubt that it's a jazz record. But it doesn't, it's obviously not straight ahead. I mean, it's in that whole Headhunters era. Right. And I really realized that jazz, it wasn't just straight ahead, post-bop, whatever we, you know, we do. It's, it's anything that has this, this feeling and this form, and, and Herbie is a master at, at changing styles and, and remaining himself. And it's always jazz, and it's always him. But he can just kind of float into these different feelings. Man. It was a real eye-opening and a, a real inspirational record for me. Yep, yep. Okay, number seven, the final one. I'm going to go with a real safe, uh, safe choice here, but it's truly one that changed my life for sure, and that's Miles Davis' Kind of Blue. I don't know that one. Which one is that? <laughs> it's kind of hard to find. It's kind of <laughs> under the radar, you know. But I can say that when I did first hear this record, it was not like the multi-million. Actually, you know what it probably already no, was, by, it the, was. <laughs> by the by the mid '80s. It, yeah, that's true. But I remember when this came out. I think the first time I heard it was when it was released on CD, actually, because oh, yeah. yeah. I was sort of like as I was getting into listening to jazz, was right the this sort of switch over from LPs to CDs. So there was like some remastering done, but then I, I, I was still, 
I was still getting LPs, not because I was a young hipster, but because they were cheaper than CDs. Oh. I finally was able to get a CD player. I, I did a gig and made enough money to get a CD player. But then the CDs were like 15 bucks, and I could get the LPs for 6 bucks or $7. But this record, you know, and, and again, it comes down to the pianist, but it's also just the entire recording. But that was really the first time I heard um, Wynton Kelly and just was blown away by his phrasing and his swing. And sort of, I, I, I kind of came to Wynton Kelly backwards because I'd heard Herbie, mm-hmm. and it's interesting you talk about thrust and stuff. I've been listening to Herbie, um, I'd heard Rocket, and that's all I knew about Herbie Hancock because. I think it's a lot of people's. Yeah, it was like 82, 83. Yeah. I, mean, I saw it on MTV and it was on the radio. And I was like, like number I one love hit. this. Yeah. yeah. And, my, and I had that record, the LP, and I actually tried to scratch with the Rocket record on my turntable. It's Herbie, man. <laughs> yeah. And so my dad was like, who is that? I said, Herbie Hancock. He's like, oh, you know, he used to play with Miles Davis. I'm like, who is that? Well, whatever, dad, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he went and showed me the, you know, My Funny Valentine. What do you know, dad? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I should have maybe said my, we might have to add number eight. Sorry. Right. Okay. Or even number nine. But anyway, because I listened to My Funny Valentine first live in concert with Herbie Hancock, with Miles and yeah. George Coleman, uh, Tony Williams, Ron Carter. But kind of blue, you know, once I saw Herbie kind of talking about it, maybe somebody mentioned Wynton Kelly, and I heard him playing on it. And just that one tune, Freddie yeah. Freeloader. Everything kind else of is blue. Bill Evans. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that just like changed my thing. And then it was also Bill Evans, my first time actually hearing him. And it's, you know, it's interesting. So Miles sort of being this conduit for introducing all these great, you know, musicians from Bill Evans, and pianists especially, you oh, know, yeah. Keith Jarrett, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a list, Red Garland. So I started getting into Miles and like just for all the different pianists that played with him. But that record, that solo, and then, you know, like the, the way that, that on Flamenco Sketches, the way Bill Evans played, I mean, just it, it, it's, it's a lifetime of study on that record. I mean, how genius is Miles that for that one track he puts on Winton? But I mean, the whole album isn't the same without Bill Evans on, on like you said, on Flamenco Sketches or Blue and Green, but yeah. it's not the same either if Winton Kelly's not on. On Freddie Freeloader. Yeah, so. yeah, it's just just a masterpiece. So. It is. Well, we could go on forever. We'll I know, come... we could do 97 <laughs> albums. You know what, we're like. going to come back to a future episode All for right, sure. Cool. All right, peace. That's it for today's episode of the You'll Hear It podcast. For more information or to hear more of these podcasts, go to openstudionetwork.com slash podcast.